Now tonight, we want to cover the uh, the little letter of Paul, uh, his first letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. And uh, I never turn to these epistles uh, to Timothy without thinking of the story that Dr. H. A. Ironside told me years ago of uh, his visit to a a church in South Texas. Uh, I think it was primarily a Negro church. And uh, when he came in, the pastor recognized him because Dr. Ironside had a very fine ministry uh, with uh, the Negro people whenever he'd come into the South. And uh, the pastor recognized him, or at least thought he recognized him, and uh, welcomed him. And Dr. Ironside had brought with him two young men from Dallas Seminary into this church. And when the pastor... uh, welcomed him, he said, you know, when this elderly gentleman came in with the two young men with him, he said, it reminded me so much of the scripture. He said, the elderly gentleman himself reminded me immediately of the Apostle Paul, and the two young men reminded me of First and Second Timothy. <laughs> now, as you know, uh, both First and Second Timothy were written to the same young man. But at different times, Second Timothy represents the last letter we have, the last word we have from the pen of the Apostle Paul. But First Timothy was written a few years earlier, probably immediately after the Apostle had been imprisoned in Rome for the first time, as recorded for us in the closing chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, there he remember, was in a hired house, and he was able to have his friends in. And after he was released from that imprisonment, he penned this letter to the young man whom he had won to Christ years before when he was preaching in Timothy's hometown of Lystra. You'll find the account in the book of Acts when Timothy, as a, as a young teenager, probably no more than 16 years of age, Uh, was brought to Christ by the powerful preaching of the Apostle Paul in the city of Lystra and uh, accompanied him after he had come back on his second journey and was a faithful minister and and son in the faith with the Apostle for the rest of his life. Uh, This is what is called uh, one of three pastoral letters in the New Testament, which mean letters written with a pastor's viewpoint. Uh, First and Second Timothy are two of them, and Titus is the third one. And therefore, in these letters, we have very intimate words from the apostle to these young men who frequently accompanied him on his journeys. Uh, where all these young men come from is not really known. I've often suspected that many of them were uh, once members of the palace guard of the Emperor Nero, because in the letter to the Philippians, Paul tells us that He was reaching, the gospel was reaching into the palace guard. And many of these young men were being brought to Christ. And perhaps some of them were among these who accompanied the apostle as he went about. Titus, perhaps, was one of those. But uh, this letter now is to Timothy. And Timothy had served as a son in the gospel with the apostle for years by now. He was probably in his late 20s or early 30s at the time this letter was written, and the apostle had sent him to Ephesus, the great city, the great commercial and pleasure resort on the shores of the 
of the uh, Mediterranean there in Asia Minor. And there, to Timothy there in that spot, this letter was written. But the letter itself, both of these letters to Timothy, reflect more than just a father-son relationship. Because although they have real intimate uh, remarks in them, nevertheless, each one of them begins with these words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. So that the, uh, the apostle felt it necessary, even in writing to his own son in the faith, to remind him that he was an apostle. Now, surely Timothy didn't need this reminder himself. He knew Paul's position well. But this indicates that the apostle perhaps knew that these letters would have a wider readership than to, his, than to Timothy alone, as frequently his letters had already been widespread and had been circulated among the churches. And therefore, it's with the authority of an apostle that Paul begins these two letters and indicates that what he has to say is more than directed to Timothy alone, but has, has meaning and authority over the churches throughout the whole Christian dispensation. As we recognize that, this means that we must take these words as having the same kind of authority that every one, uh, every other one of Paul's letters have for us. The apostles were men with a peculiar and unique ministry. Uh, every now and then you hear someone refer to Paul as in a disparaging way. Even Christians will sometimes say, well, you know, Paul wrote some things that we can't put much stock in or uh, we can't uh, take as authoritative. He was a confirmed old bachelor and what he said about women is not really significant. But uh, this is really to deny the apostolic office and to refuse the authority that the Lord Jesus gave his apostles. This is the mark of an apostle, that they were commissioned by the Lord himself and sent out with an authoritative word, and given the task of speaking uh, authoritatively in every area of doctrine or practice, whatever it may be. So these letters come from the pen of an apostle, as well as the beloved father in the faith of, of young Timothy. The first letter, 1 Timothy, has to do with the ministry of uh, the church. And the second letter, the message of the church. The first letter centers around the church itself, its character and its nature and its function in the world. The second letter centers around the message that it has to convey. The great theme is the gospel and Timothy's relationship to that gospel. Now, in this first letter, if you read it through this afternoon, I hope that you noted that there are two themes interwoven and intermingled throughout this letter. The first one is captured for us in chapter 3, verse 15. I say first, although it doesn't occur first, it's first in its emphasis. And in chapter 3, verse 15, the apostle says, If I am delayed, or we should begin with 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you, so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, 
the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. Now, when he talks about behaving in church, he isn't uh, speaking of uh, of whether of, of what you do in the congregation, meeting together in a building. He's talking about the church, not his buildings, but his people. One, to me, one of the great weaknesses of the present day. Uh, evangelical life is that we still think so much of the church as a building and we speak of it as a building but uh, the church is not a building it's people I said to someone uh, the other day something about the cults coming into the church and she uh, and and this person said oh you mean they're coming right into the church meetings and I said no I didn't say that it's not that they're coming into the meetings, they're coming into the church. For the church is people, not buildings. And this was the concern of the apostle as he wrote to young Timothy that he would know how to conduct himself in the ministry and the relationships of the body of Christ, the church of the living God. Then the second theme is found in the first chapter, verse 5, where we're told... That the aim of our charge, says the apostle, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is more of a personal matter. The first theme is that of the, of the church and its ministry and an individual Christian's relationship to that church. The second theme is the individual in his relationship to the world and to God. And as the apostle puts it, it's to be love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Now in the realm of experience, where we actually live, the place you begin with is the last one of these four, with sincere faith. That's the way you come into a Christian life, by believing the word of God and exercising faith in what he said. And that, says the apostle, is to uh, lead you to a good conscience. Well, a good conscience means one that has obeyed the word that's believed. And uh, this is to be the mark of every individual Christian, that we obey what we believe. And we do not have guilt over it. We have a good conscience about what we believe. And that, in turn, says the apostle, will result in a pure heart, which means a purified heart. None of us has a pure heart by birth. We need to be cleansed, purified, by the washing of the word of God and the cleansing of the blood of Christ. But if we, if we have a good conscience about our faith, it will result in a pure heart and from that pure heart will flow an unceasing stream of love. Uh, love that issues out of a pure heart. And you see, that's, of course, touching the whole realm of personal relationships and the world around us. That which the world desperately needs today is love. And it must come in this sequence. Now, these two themes, the individual Christian living in the relationship to the church around constitute the interwoven, intermingled themes of this one letter. And the letter itself falls into two major divisions. There is the first, most of the, well, the first chapter constitutes one division, 
and the last four chapter, five chapters constitute the second. And in this first division, you have the background of Paul's charge to his son, Timothy. Now, remember that he was left at Ephesus, and Ephesus was a great city. It was a resort city, a commercial city. Uh, it was a city given over largely to the worship of a heathen goddess, Diana of the Ephesians, who was also called Artemis, and it was the love goddess of the, of the Greek world. And in this city of Ephesus was a temple dedicated to the worship of, of Diana or Artemis. And uh, uh, it was Timothy's task to, uh, to minister to the church that was located there, which was opposing all the crass commercialism and the blind idolatry and the pagan superstition of this darkened heathen city. And it was a formidable task. The apostle is concerned that Timothy be conduct himself well. And so the first part of this is, is to form a background for the charge that the apostle delivers to his young son in the faith. And uh, the first note that the apostle strikes is that he is to oppose false teaching. And this indicates that by now the church has begun to be permeated with false teachers. The early church had its share of heretics as well as the 20th century church. There were Bishop Pikes back in that day too. And uh, the apostle is or Timothy is warned against them. He says, uh, I left you there to charge you uh, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the divine training that is in faith. And then he goes on to indicate, too, that one of the things that was causing problems in the church was the wrong understanding of the law. There were these who were trying to regulate Christian conduct by uh, imposing rigid regulations and... Uh, insisting that these be carried through to the letter without any understanding of the control of an indwelling life and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, when you try to do that in the church, you miss the boat badly. That's the wrong use of the law. Now he says, the law is intended for a proper purpose. And this is, by the way, is one of the best passages I know of in the New Testament to counteract some of the allegations that we hear on every side today that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, we're, that it's perfectly proper to disregard uh, the law or to uh, overthrow or violate uh, uh, the regulations that are set up by society to govern itself and that we can resist these things and deny them and do so in the name of God. Now, the apostle says, no, the law has a particular purpose. It's given, he says, for the lawless, for the disobedient, for those who, who uh, uh, and, and he gives a list, the unholy and the profane and the murderers of fathers and mothers and immoral persons and sodomites and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and so on. But if you've come to Christ, and your heart is intent upon pleasing him, you don't need the expression of the law to keep you from doing right. Love will do it. 
But remember, love is interpreted by the law. And we only understand what law, love is when we see it uh, spelled out for us in terms of the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not steal. These things are ways of describing how love acts. And we have a great and helpful passage here on that. Then the apostle says the second thing that is the motive for charging Timothy is his own experience of grace. Paul never forgot that he had been, as he terms it here, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insulter of Christ. But God met him and forgave him and delivered him and set him free. And every now and then, this this continually breaks out in Paul like a spring of water that can't be stopped up. And he just flows forth in a lyrical passage that expresses his love and, and, and excitement and uh, thankfulness and gratitude that God has done this work in his life. And that uh, uh, is really uh, the uh, expression of verse 12 through 17 here as he's giving thanks to God for what Christ had done in calling him into the preaching of the gospel. And Timothy, you see, is to imitate him in that. And uh, he goes on to charge him now with doing that very thing. Now the rest of the letter from chapter 2 on is made up of this charge that the apostle has for his young son in the faith. And I'll quickly run through it. We'll not dwell on these at, at any length. But it, it consists of five elements. First... In chapter 2, there are certain instructions on conducting public worship, divided between the activities of men and those of women. And these are very helpful. Men, he says, are to pray and to lead out in prayer and to pray for kings and for those in authority in order that we might live in peace and godliness and uh, respectful in every way. Then in verse 8, he turns to the women. And I think we need to read this just a a little differently in order to understand what the apostle is saying. In verse 8, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, also that women should pray, adorning themselves modestly, and so on. Now, if you read it that way, you'll get the thought of the apostle. He's saying that women have the right to minister and to pray in public as well as men. And there are some who have misunderstood that in going through here. But, as he puts the restriction a little later, verse 11, Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She's to keep silent. In the congregation, you see, in the meeting of the church together, women are not to teach men authoritatively. This is the idea. They're not to be the final word of authority within that church as to what the doctrine or teaching of the New Testament is. And the apostle did not permit that. And he gives two reasons. First, he says, because um, Adam was formed first and then Eve, that is, As uh, Genesis puts it, woman was made for man and not man for woman. And second, because the woman was deceived and therefore fell into transgression. And it's interesting, 
to note that, one, that Eve's sin in Genesis was primarily that of trying to arrive at a theological conclusion apart from her husband's counsel. But the apostle goes on to put, give, to show woman uh, a wonderful ministry in a verse that has been garbled somewhat in translation and is greatly misunderstood. Verse 15, yet, he says, women will be saved through bearing children if she, literally, if they, the children, continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Now, what does he mean? Women shall be saved through bearing children. Well, I must confess, I have struggled long with this passage. <clears throat> and uh, there are three major interpretations of it, and I've been an adherent of all three at times. <laughs> but now I think they're all wrong. <laughs> and I really believe that you have the, me the meaning of this troublesome passage given to us, basically, in... Uh, his word in the fourth chapter, verse 16, where the apostle writes to young Timothy and says, Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Hold to that, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, what does he mean, save? Timothy was already saved. He had been a Christian for many, many years. And certainly people aren't saved by Timothy's obeying the truth. Other people. What does he mean then? Well, you see, he's using the word salvation in a, in a different sense than we normally give it. And it appears in this way in several places in the scripture. He means by it the solutions to problems. You find the same word, the same meaning of it in Philippians 2.13. You remember that passage that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That means work out the solutions to the problems you, you confront with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And this is the meaning here. Woman, he says, uh, will be saved. In this sense, we'll find her place of ministry, the solution to this problem of this desire within for ministry through childbearing. If they, the children, continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. In other words, the woman's ministry is to raise her children in such a way that they exemplify the, the finest virtues of Christian faith. And in doing so, the woman finds the solution to her own desire for ministry and to her own problems. Now, let me hasten on. I've dwelt with that a little bit at length because it's a, a naughty passage. Uh, then in chapter 3, the apostle turns to the qualifications of church leaders. And these fall into two major categories, the bishops and the deacons. The bishops are the elders. The deacons are... Any in the church who exercise, who do a special task for the whole church, Sunday school teachers, are deacons, deaconesses. Uh, uh, anyone who, the, the leaders, those who represent the church in any ministry are deacons. These men who went down from here, down to Guatemala, are thus performing the service of deacons. They're going out and representing the church in its outreach. 
And he says three things about these men. First, they're to be blameless. That means that that's necessary to avoid being disapproved or set aside, as Paul himself speaks of the possibility in his own life in 1 Corinthians. He says, I beat my body and bring it under, sub- under subjection, lest having preached to others, I myself might be disapproved. So their lives are to be blameless, to avoid that. Second, they're to be mature. That is, they're to, uh, they're to have grown up in spiritual matters. They're to be men in, who understand how to tell the difference between good and evil and how to apply the word so that it produces righteousness. All these things are given to us in other parts of Scripture. And they're to do this in order to avoid pride, because the great temptation of using an immature person is that they be lifted up with pride, and thus, says the apostle, fall into the trap of the devil. And pride is always a trap. And third, these men were to be of good repute, That is, to have a good reputation to avoid public scandal, and thus bringing the whole ministry of the church into disgrace. Now, deacons are treated somewhat similarly. They're to be men or women who do these special tasks within the church. And he adds but one major thing about them. They're first to be tested. That is, they're to be given a trial at doing some work, and if they perform it well, then... They're recognized as men and women who can be trusted with responsibility in any area of the work of the church. Then in chapter uh, uh, 3, the latter part of it, verses 14 to 16, you have the importance of this charge that the apostle is delivering in this letter. And it all relates to the fact that the church is linked with the mystery of Christ. Christ is the greatest figure in the universe. Everything relates to him. And Paul uses a first century hymn to set forth what he means. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the strange way God has of working out the problems of earth. And the church is linked to that. That's why this charge is so important. These words must be taken with utmost seriousness because they link to this one who is the center of the universe. In chapter 4, quite appropriately, he turns to the subject of apostasy. Now, apostates and heretics are different. You hear both of these terms bandied about and sometimes we tend to confuse them. But a heretic is someone who holds a slightly uh, divergent uh, doctrinal position, but not on a fundamental basis or issue. A heretic is a Christian. He's one who basically does accept and know the Lord Jesus Christ, but he tends to go wrong in some particular doctrinal issue. But an apostate never was a Christian. And yet he's a person who gives the impression of being a Christian, who testifies to that fact. But ultimately, as John tells us in his first letter, he goes out from us in order that it might be made manifest that he was not of us. For if he had been of us, he would have continued with us. 
And the apostle recognizes immediately that there will be apostasy in the church. The Lord Jesus had said so. He said that the sower went out to sow and and spread this good seed of the kingdom, and the enemy came along and spread the tares in his path. And these would grow up together, said Jesus, until the harvest. And this is why we'll never get rid of apostates and infidels within the church. It's been true in the 20th century, and it's been true in every century since the first, that uh, there have been men within the church who have risen up with wrong and fundamentally unchristian attitudes. And they arise, as Paul describes here in the fourth chapter, from doctrines of demons. That is, uh, they come from deceitful spirits. Behind these philosophies that are, are apostate is not merely twisted ideas of men, but deliberately deceitful ideas of wicked spirits attempting to lead people astray. And he, de- he describes these in the first five verses of this chapter. Then in verses 6 through 16, he tells us how Timothy should deal with these. And this is interesting. There's to be no driving them out with excommunication until their apostasy at least becomes very, very evident. But first, the, uh, Timothy is to inform the congregation about the truth. Second, he's to set the example for them in his own personal life, verses 7 through 12. And third, he's to expound the scriptures to them. Till I come, attend to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching, and do not neglect this gift which was given you by prophetic utterance. This is the guarantee against apostasy. Informing the congregation of the dangers involved. Setting the example in a personal life and and expounding the scriptures so that the truth is set forth. In chapter 5, you have, in chapters 5 and 6, you have the handling of certain special church problems that would arise from time to time. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, the matter of personal relationships, how to treat younger and older people within the church. Chapter, uh, verse 3 through 16 takes up the question of welfare problems. Certain widows, in particular, who were in need in those days. They didn't have social security, and uh, these were problems the church had to handle. I think it would be better if the church had to handle these problems today. But uh, uh, Paul, uh, uh, Paul instructs Timothy on how to recognize the phony from the real, and how to handle the real needs so that they don't become uh, burdens on the church going on and on forever. And he gives advice on how to, uh, on, in, on encouraging certain younger women to remarry when they become widows, while others are to be carried on the church rolls. These are very helpful in a practical way. Then in verse 17 to 22, he takes up official problems. That is, charges against elders, leaders in the church and how to handle them. And in verse 23 through 24, certain personal problems that the Timothy himself would have. And here is that well-known passage, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
Undoubtedly, this is the best-known verse in 1 Timothy. <laughs> and uh, many have had trouble with it. I remember uh, in this last uh, trip I took down into Latin America, Dit Fenton, the general director of the Latin American mission who spoke for us so glowingly uh, a few Sundays ago, uh, told me that some years before, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse had come down into Latin America and uh, uh, they were in the hotel together, and uh, Dr. Fenton thought it well to warn Dr. Barnhouse that perhaps he might pick up some of these uh, tourist uh, diseases that uh, we often get down in those countries, and uh, to watch drinking water and, and food in some of the public restaurants and so forth. And Dr. Barnhouse turned to him in his, in his uh, unique way and said to him, You know... Uh, Dit, what's the matter with you missionaries? You uh, you get into these troubles because you you're disobedient to the Holy Spirit. And uh, Dit Fenton said, "What do you mean?" Well, said Doctor Barnhouse, the Holy Spirit said that when you go into these areas where uh, amoebas and other uh, diseases of this type flourish. Use a little wine for your stomach's sake, and you won't get these. He said, that's the background of this. The water in these cities was not good. And Paul was writing to Timothy to use a little wine for his stomach's sake. And if you do that, he said, you missionaries, you find you wouldn't have any amoebic troubles. Well, I don't know whether that works or not, but at least that was Dr. Barnhouse's diagnosis of it. On another occasion, he was asked a, a question about this in a question and answer session in his church in Philadelphia. Someone asked the question, is it not true that the wine mentioned in 1 Timothy uh, 5 was really grape juice? And Dr. Barnhouse took the question, read it, and said, they got drunk on it in Corinth. Next question. <laughs> Threw it aside. Chapter 6 goes into the matter of social problems. And here is a word first to the, to the downtrodden, the degraded, the slaves. This, by the way, is one of the most instructive passages in the New Testament to answer some of the problems that are being flung at us on every side today about how to handle those who are second-class citizens, how to, what the word of counsel of Christians should be to those who are uh, degraded and, and deprived of certain human rights and so forth. Paul addresses this to those who are under the yoke of slavery. And he tells them how to behave if they're Christians. By the way, this is addressed, you see, to Christian slaves. It's very instructive. And uh, that uh, covers all the way down through verse 10, where he's reminding them that the urge to get material things can be a terrible danger to the spiritual life. Then in verse 11, he turns to the application of this to Timothy. And in a glowing, wonderful passage, he exhorts this young man, to walk honestly and steadfastly and openly in the sight of God 
until the day when the Lord Jesus himself calls him home. And finally he closes the section with a word to the rich. He began with the poor. He closes with a word to the rich and to the learned, giving them their Christian responsibilities, that they're rich because they have been blessed of God in order to help someone else, not to satisfy their own desires. They have a responsibility, he says, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future, and that they might take hold of the life right now, which is life indeed. And then he reminds him of a word of warning to those who trust in knowledge, human knowledge. Old Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. Avoid the godless chatter and the contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have missed the mark as regards the faith. What an up-to-date letter this is. How thoroughly it speaks to our own time, as well as to this first century. May God grant that we will be, we will understand it and live by it. But we stand together now and we'll be dismissed. Grant to us, our Father, that we may take seriously these words, these wonderfully helpful, brilliant words that come to us from that long ago, first century. But we thank you, Lord, they come with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, designed for our own times as well. We live in the midst of conflict like this, of uh, pressures, of blasphemies, of insults to thy name of uh, pressures of, uh, and, of, and of apostasies and heresies. Grant that we may saturate ourselves in these wise words, that we too may know how to behave ourselves in the church of God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.